Next week's Father's Day alert, public service announcement. And uh, we will ask our children who already have their arrows to bring them to the service next week so that dads can pray for you because it's a picture in our church. I can't remember the psalm, re- psalm reference. Somebody help me. Uh, quiver, full quiver. Uh, blessed is the man whose quiver is full, and the quiver represents uh, uh, a container holding arrows, and each arrow is a symbol of each son or daughter in your life that, and I'm no archer, but will launch into life. And that's what we do, right? We prepare our kids to send them out to go adult for the rest of their lives and raise their kids to go adult and all of that. And uh, we, we need the Lord to help us do that well, okay? Sometimes it's a parent that's getting to do that. Sometimes it's a grandparent that's getting to do that, a guardian. It, it doesn't matter. Um, parenting is parenting, and we all need God's help to do that. So this is what I'm asking of you. If you have arrows at your house, if you will bring them when you come next week, and if you do not have an arrow for your kids, we will have some in this bucket right here. It'll be full of arrows, and you will be able to take one arrow for each son or daughter if you, that you still have at home to launch, okay? So this is your reminder, your visual, okay? Let's remember to bring our arrows next week so that we can make sure that we are helping our dads pray for their kids. It's not just a dad's job, but uh, we picked Father's Day to do that, so you can help me do that. All right? Awesome. It's good to see you today. We're gonna, I'm going to pray here in a second. We're going to be in Revelation 14, and I tried to get it in one message, but I promise you, you don't want to hear me preach all of it in one message. <laughs> it took a while. So we're going to break it into two parts, and yes, we're going to preach about judgment on Father's Day next week, <laughs> okay, because it's what's next, and I'm going to trust that God will use that message in the lives of whoever, whomever comes Whoever listens online and watches and, and all of that, and, and you know, for many people, they'll be like, it's Father's Day? Oh, okay, that's fine. And for others, it will be a big deal, and there will be big celebrations and all of that. So, um, but at the end of the day, it's the Word of God, and we're going to trust that it's going to be exactly what we need on that day and in all the days that follow for those who access it online, because once it's online, right, it's there. <laughs> you're online once you're there. There's no getting off uh, of that, so... Uh, and I don't know the year, but there was a fellow named Antonio James. And Antonio James was a teenager in New Orleans. And this was just a few years ago. This wasn't that long ago. And he was part of a gang, and that gang would rob tourists in the French Quarter at gunpoint. And they usually didn't have a problem of resistance. People would usually just kind of give up whatever they had, and then they wouldn't get hurt. Except one time. One time somebody resisted and Antonio shot him and killed him. And I guess they gathered up the gang and the gang all ratted him out so that they could save their own necks. And so he got the death sentence and he was sent to death row. And he spent about 14 years there before he was eventually executed in the Angola prison in the Louisiana penitentiary system which is another whole story in and of itself, pretty horrible place at the time. 
while he's there on death row, he comes to know Christ. And he begins to teach the other men on death row how to read. That should say something right there, okay? Today for people not being able to read. He's teaching them how to read so that they can read the Bible for themselves. And he counsels and teaches Bible studies and whatever they'll allow him to do, whatever they allowed him to do on death row until the day of his execution. Now, the warden of that prison was also a believer. Burl Kane. Doesn't that sound like a good Louisiana name? Or Louisiana for those who are from there? So the day came. He's in the death chamber. Burl's holding his hand saying, get ready to see Jesus. And then he's executed after apologizing again to the family and asking for their forgiveness. He's executed and Burl's last words after that happened was, we just sent Antonio James to his final judgment. So here's the question for you for for today. I want you to think about this question. What are you going to do between now and judgment day? What are you going to do between now and judgment day? So we're going to look at that in in this chapter. God is going to keep his word to the righteous. He's also going to keep his word to what the Bible calls the wicked. And I know that in our culture, it sounds judgmental for me to say those words. There, There are people that are wicked. I'm just speaking as if God were saying, to us here. If he were standing here, he would say, some of you are righteous because of my grace, and some of you are wicked because you haven't received that grace yet. And so in God's eyes, he sees us in one of those two categories. He sees us as someone who is righteous, even though we don't always live righteously, and those who are wicked and not even interested in righteousness yet. Okay, It's important that you understand that's not me making a judgment. It's important that you see that God has already made a judgment. Now, he knows the future. He knows how it's going to play out. We don't get to know that. But at the end of the day, we will stand before him, and he will treat us as either righteous or wicked. Okay? And that should sober us. It should cause us to answer the question, where am I? or at least ask the question, and, and then find the answer to that because you can know, all right? In 1 John, he says that you can know that you, that you have that relationship with God. It's not something you just sit around and wonder, well, I think I'm going to heaven. Well, that's not, there's no peace in I think I'm going to heaven. How about I know that I'm going, okay? So um, there's three things that are that are that um, God is trying to do, I think, through chapter 14 here in Revelation. And we're not going to cover it all, like I said, but he's trying to do three things. Two things are for God's people, what he calls, who he calls the redeemed in this chapter, and one for those who are not redeemed yet. And I say yet because I'm holding out hope, okay? But Jesus said, narrow is the way that leads to life, and few find it. Broad is the road that leads to destruction. So while I know that's true, I'm thinking not averages, I'm thinking specifics. There are individuals that I'm hoping will hear this message and be moved to humble themselves and move from wicked to righteous. 
Not by your works, not by anything that you do or deserve, but by the grace of God. So let's pray, and then we'll, we'll dive in. Lord, I'm not very good at this, but I am banking on the fact that you are really good at saying what you want to say through whomever's willing to open their mouth in your name, by your grace, in faith. And so, Lord, I, I help pray that you'll help me do that and that you'll also help all those within the sound of my voice, whether it's today live or in the future recorded, to hear what you want them to hear and respond as you would have them respond. And that when you um, use those words to change their lives, that you would get all the glory for that. Help me now worship you as I speak. Help us to worship you as we listen. In Christ's name, amen. So John is continuing to unveil what God is revealing to him through this series of visions, okay? And he's going to start off and he's going to say, I looked because he's seeing more information. Remember, he's using symbols to describe things that are hard for him to describe because there are things that God is showing him that transcend culture and time, but he's got to somehow see it in such a way that he can communicate it so that it will not just mean something to them then, but it will mean something to us 2,000 years later and then in the future, however far that goes. Okay, so that's why it reads kind of weird. But when you think about it, it's kind of a nice way of God simplifying things for us and making it so that we're not caught up in um, under, trying to understand something that, that we just can't relate to because we don't understand the, the culture he was in 2,000 years ago. All right, so John writes, Then I looked, verse 1, and there before me was the Lamb, Okay, And in my Bible, the Lamb is capitalized because it's helping us, the interpreters are helping us understand that this is Jesus. Okay, And we, we could go back and I could show you, but if you've been around listening to this series, you know that the Lamb in the book of Revelation and really in the Bible is symbolic of Jesus, the ultimate Lamb, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. So here he is. He's standing Okay, I looked, and there before me was the Lamb standing on Mount Zion. So where's Mount Zion? Okay, it's not in the Appalachian Mountain. Okay, it's in the Middle East. It's in Israel. It's in Jerusalem. It's the mountain or mountains that Jerusalem's built on top of. The temple's there. The city is there. When the Ark of the Covenant was in the temple and the temple was present, God was there. Okay, not that God can fit, but you, you understand what I'm saying. He's in the presence of his people, bringing his presence to his people for all the reasons God wants to do that. And we could go on and on about that, but that's a big deal. So that's the scene is Mount Zion. And with him, 144,000. Now, that number should sound familiar to you. First of all, we, we read it. You go back to chapter 7. You can turn back a couple pages, and you'll see there was 144,000 people of Israel, probably representing redeemed um, Jews who understand, okay, Jesus really is the Messiah, and they, it clicks for them. It could represent all of them, not just 144,000. probably does because the number is 12 times 12,000, 12 tribes of Israel, 12,000 in each tribe. Just God's way of saying all of them. Okay, It's poetic. It's symbolic. It's just God showing off. And here it is again, 144,000. So it's the redeemed, which is another word we use for saved, okay? The word redeemed means to buy back. Some of you might remember back in the days of greenback stamps. And you've got to be my age or older probably to remember that, but 
You would collect them at the grocery store and you'd fill your sticker book up and then you'd go to the redemption center and you would turn your greenback stamps or you know in and that would give you the ability to buy junk. I mean stuff in this in the greenback store, okay? So you you bought back some of what you you got credit for that. So and this is way better than that. Another word is purchased. Another word would be even ransomed. So it gives, it creates a gift that is free to the giver, but it costs somebody something. So that's redeemed. So when we talk about the redeemed, we're talking about people who have genuinely been born again, people who have genuinely turned from their sins to the Lord by grace through faith. And that's a transaction okay, of types. It's a legal transaction. It's a spiritual transaction that cannot be reversed. It can't be reversed any more than a baby being um, unborn, right? It just doesn't make sense, and that's why I think Jesus uses that illustration in John 3. Okay, so so here we have Jesus standing with the redeemed. Now, verses 1 through 5 are going to talk about the redeemed, and this is where I want to kind of focus today because if you're, uh, if you're a follower of Jesus Christ, you are redeemed, and these things are true for you and me, okay? And they're all by the grace of God. We don't deserve it. We shouldn't be walking around like we, we're all that because we're not. We're that in spite of who we are. And so there's three things I want you to take away as far as it relates to the redeemed. The first thing is that we stand securely in Christ, all right? Then I looked, or we, with Christ even, then I looked, and there before me was the Lamb, and standing on the Mount Zion, and with him 144,000 who had his name and his father's name written on their foreheads. Now, if you remember last week, if you were uh, able to hear, we talked about the infamous Mark of the Beast, 666 and all that, and it's either on your hand or on your forehead. That's Satan imitating what God does. Remember, he's the great counterfeiter. He can't, he's never had an original thought in his life, and he's never created anything um, because he's no God. He's just a created being himself. And, and if you go back to chapter seven, well, 13 is where we see the mark of the beast, um, and it, t- it talks about that if you don't take the mark, then you're gonna, life's going to get really, really hard for you. Okay? Well, here's God saying, let me give you something that's worth way more than anything that mark of the beast can get you. Okay? Because if you're sealed with my name on your forehead, then you are safe. Okay? That doesn't mean you're untouchable in the sense of that nothing bad can happen to you, although you are untouchable if God wants you to be. Okay? He, he takes care of his own. But here's the thing. God lets bad stuff happen to his people. Just, he just doesn't do it for no reason. And I, the proof of that is what he allowed to happen to his son, right? He sent his son. His son lived a perfect life, did nothing to deserve any kind of punishment, and yet God sent him to die on the cross, to suffer and die, right? That we, we think of suffering as the ultimate wrong. And God says, oh, I use suffering too. You brought it on, so I'm going to use it. And he does, and he uses it in our life. So if, he, if it's not too much for him to use it on his own son, I think he's going to use it in the other sons and daughters that he has through Christ. And, and that's, uh, that's why the martyrs in the early days of the early church considered it a, a privilege to suffer for him. If you were reading through your Bible plan this week and you saw in Acts 3, 4, 5, somewhere in there, you saw that, the, that John and Peter were rejoicing after they got flogged because they had been faithful and so they got flogged for that. Why would they be celebrating? Because they got to suffer for Jesus. Okay, And then they know that that suffering is not wasted, but God is going to use it in the lives of other people, and he did. We're here because they were willing to do that, and that continued. So while suffering is not something I ever want to ask for, 
It's not something I ever am going to enjoy. I am going to, when I'm walking with the Lord, I'm going to embrace it because I believe that God can use it and will use it. I don't think he ever wastes a hurt. Okay? So here we have that they're standing securely with, with Jesus, the redeemed are. Okay? Even though they're in a very dangerous day, both in the days of Jesus and the days in the future, which is what it's also describing. So they had the name of God written on their forehead, the name of God, name of Jesus written on their forehead, marking them as, and that gives, um, that says, God owns me. Okay? God owns me. I'm his. And I gladly submit to that. And if you want to call that slavery, I'll, okay, I'm a slave to Jesus. I'm good with that. Okay? Because he's so good. There's nowhere else I would rather be. All right. Now, verse 2 and 3 move to uh, another thing that the redeemed do, and that is that we sing loudly to him. So we, we stand securely with him, we sing loudly to him, and, and it's in worship. Watch this, verses 2 and 3. And I heard a sound from heaven like the roar of rushing waters and uh, like a, a loud peal of thunder. And I'm thinking of a downpour with thunder and lightning right on top of your house, hitting the tree in the front yard kind of close, right? Loud and just the house is shaking at every crack and thunder. So there's a sense of awe and power. But add to that what sounds to me like, pick your favorite band, Electrified, with their guitars going, and it says, I heard, the sound I heard was like that of harpists playing their harps. Okay, harps for them, guitars for us, kind of, a, you know, right? Okay, they loved harps like we love guitars, and I realize not everybody loves guitars, but... Um, pick your favorite style of guitar. What that tells me is there's a beautiful melody underlying the power and awe that is coming through this sound. Okay, and so and so then it says verse three and they sang a new song. Who's singing? The redeemed. Okay, the redeemed are singing a new song and uh, before the throne. So now we've moved from Mount Zion to the throne room. Okay, remember chapters 4 and 5? We have the throne of God, and next to God the Father is standing, the lamb, the lamb who was slain yet is standing because he's alive, because he's been resurrected. So we have Jesus representing the cross and the resurrection in one image. Then we had the four creatures that are worshiping, then the 24 elders, and then the myriads and myriads of angels, and just this massive, glorious setting of worship for our Creator. So I don't know if Mount Zion was kind of like on the wall of the throne room and they're kind of showing that or if they flash from one place to another and it doesn't really matter. The point is what is happening? And the first is that the redeemed stands securely with Christ. You and I stand on solid ground. We stand on the solid rock of Christ with him, okay? So whatever's gonna come our way in life, okay, you have the, if you're in Christ, you have good footing under your feet. And yes, it's going to feel at times like the world is shaking and you're looking for something to grab a hold of, and that's when you run to Christ. He's the only thing that's not shaking. He's the rock that doesn't roll. That's why we run to him. But we don't just stand with him. We sing to him, worship, praise. It's why one of the things, one of the elements in our worship service is singing. Christians sing, okay? Now, I get it. Some people don't like to sing because they go, first of all, they go, I can't sing. All right, and some of you don't even like music, okay? Well, that's going to change if you're in Christ. I'm just going to give you a heads up. Maybe you'll never sing well. I can't help you there. But the Lord can. But here's, he's not asking for beautiful singing. He's asking for loud singing. Okay? We sing pretty well here, okay? But we don't sing as loudly as we could, I don't think. Okay? And I just, I just want to say, hey, 
think about who you're singing to. And maybe you're not thinking that. Maybe you're just thinking, I'm just singing the song because this is what you do before the sermon. That's the wrong mindset, okay? The singing and the worship that we do through song and through prayer and through scripture reading is absolutely just as important as what I'm doing right here. It is not more important or less important. All of this is an offering to the Lord, okay? All right, we just put the sermon here because it's like we gotta, we got to eventually put him up there, so they go for it, right? But let's sing and pray, and then, okay, let's see if he's got something to say. And at least I can read it, right? This word of God is awesome. But let's think about when we sing, why we're singing and what we're singing. And, and you know, I know there's times when we sing songs that are familiar, and we're like, oh, I know this one, I like this one, and we kind of emotionally get into it. But we forget to think about it. And then there are other times we get a new song and we're like, I don't know if I want to sing this song or not. I don't even know if I agree with this song. All of those are real, and that's fine. God gave you a brain. Use it and, and process. And if you need to sing the song by faith, I'm going to sing this and God knit it into my heart so that I can sing it with integrity, then give yourself the permission to do that. Sometimes I'll sing a song as a prayer because I can't sing it with integrity, but I want to be able to one day. So I'll say, Lord, help me sing this song so that it can be true for me. And then sometimes I'll just pray instead of sing. It, you know, just, it's, it's a tool, but it's also a privilege to stand before the Lord and to sing, ascribe praise to him. He's worthy, okay? We need to remember that, okay? So I, I just kind of hope that our, our singing will continue to, to improve as, we, as it does here. And, and they don't just sing a song, they sing a new song. And it's interesting that the only people that can understand this new song and sing this new song are the redeemed. And, you know, I don't know exactly what's meant by that, honestly, but I would imagine that there's going to be some understanding that only God's people are going to have when they sing. All right? So count that as a privilege. It's part of the privilege of being able to do this. And sing loudly, even if you don't think you can sing well, because it's the heart behind the song that, uh, that God is looking at. It's not how great it is. All right, And they sang a new song before the throne, before the four living creatures and the elders. No one could learn the song except the 144,000 who had been redeemed from the earth. And then it's going to describe the third category. So we've said they st- these redeemed stand securely with Christ. They sing loudly to Christ. And they are sanctified through Christ. Okay, and I'll read that in just a second. They're sanctified. What's the word sanctified mean? It means become more like Jesus. And the root of the word is that is the word holy. Sancti, sancti, think of sanctity of human life, the holiness of human life. Okay, the sanctity of marriage, the holy matrimony. Right, that that's a holy thing. God, it's the first institution God gave humanity was marriage. Okay, so we've got that, and then um, it says here. Uh, verse 4, these are those who did not defile themselves with women. Okay, so that sounds like, okay, these are men who are virgins. It's more than that. Okay, and I'll explain in a second. For they remain virgins. They followed, they follow the lamb wherever he goes. They were purchased, redeemed, you could say, from among mankind and offered as first fruits to God and the lamb. No lie was found in their mouths. They are blameless. So you see how we see obedience, we see faith. All of these are descriptions of of uh, the redeemed. Now, I want to go back to this one phrase before I move on. That they did not defile themselves with women, for they remained virgins. In Scripture, you'll see this a lot. You'll see that, especially in the Old Testament, where Israel is called a spiritual adulterer. Okay? So what's an adulterer? It's someone who has been unfaithful to their husband or wife. All right? Physically. All right? But this is, when God is using that language, spiritual adultery, he's referring to spiritual 
being unfaithful spiritually, all right, to whom? To your spiritual spouse. Who is that? Okay, and we go to the New Testament, and we remember that the bride of Christ is another description for the church. So when you, when you look at all of the redeemed, all the people who know the Lord, we are collectively called, among other things, the bride of Christ. That means we are his bride. That means he's the groom. And I know that's a little weird for us guys being the bride. It's a little strange. I understand. But remember, this is bigger than marriage in, in our lives, physical marriage. It's bigger than that. Okay? Because marriage is actually a picture of the gospel. It's a picture of the relationship between God and man, God and people. Okay? So when a husband loves his wife unconditionally and serves her and blesses her, that's, that's supposed to be a reflection of what Jesus is already doing for the church. And when she loves and respects him submissively, gladly, and absolutely unashamedly, that's a picture of how the church should be responding to, to the Lord, right? And so we see a picture of our relationship forever as the body of Christ, the bride of Christ, in a good, healthy marriage. This is why healthy marriages matter. This is why your kids need to see healthy marriages, right? We know that when you come to church, you put on a good face. We understand that that happens. But your kids see you when you're at home, okay? And that's, that's your, I mean, we're not to be looking for legacies, but that is a legacy you leave. Your kids will, they're going to do what they saw. So as you train them, whether you mean to or not, and how you interact with one another, recognize that's supposed to be to them your opportunity to show them the gospel, the good news that the kingdom of God is near, and that when you know the king, he causes you to love one another and respect one another unconditionally. And when you don't do that, that's sin, plain and simple, because you are not only not showing the gospel, you are dragging it through the mud. Okay? And I know, I get it, he or she is 95% of the problem. I get the perspective. I understand. I've been there. But I'm just telling you, you got to own your part. And you have to take responsibility for your part because you're going to answer for your part. You're going to stand before God. And one of the things he's going to ask you is, what did you do with my, my redeemed that you got in marriage? Okay? I understand that's hard. I understand there's a lot of pain that I could, you could unpack in this room just thinking about that one idea. God's grace is sufficient, it is enough, and it can do the amazing miraculous in any relationship. You just have to decide whether or not you trust him and believe that he can do that, and then give him the opportunity to do that. And you can say, I was about to say, don't expect a miracle. You probably should expect a miracle, because we're all hard-hearted and hard-headed, all right? And that's probably one of the hardest things to see change, because it takes time, usually, okay? And yet, God can change a heart like that. So why don't we step into that? All right, no extra charge for that. Let's keep going. Uh, we're in verse 6. So now we're shifting away from God's redeemed and the, the, of the, the faithful's future. That was supposed to be the main point of all of that, was God's faithful have a glorious future. Another way of saying the best is yet to come. I think I've heard that before. Okay, verse 6. Now we're going to move to God is going to keep his promises to all people. All right. That means he's going to keep his promises. We've said this earlier. He's going to keep his promises to the, to the righteous, and he's going to keep his promises to the wicked. Now, this is the part where it starts to get really uncomfortable because I'm going to say all kinds of things that are not politically correct. They're not even politically correct in churches. Okay? I'm just going to read it and shine a light on it and try to stay out of the way. But it's as real. 
okay? And it's true, it was true 2,000 years ago when John revealed it, when God revealed it to John who revealed it to the church. It's true today, and it's true as long as we're here, because God's word doesn't change, all right? And it should sober us. So now we're going to see some more angels here. Then I saw another angel flying in midair. I'm not sure where else he would be flying, so it's probably a translation uh, thing there for me that I don't get. Then I saw another angel flying in midair, and he had the eternal gospel to proclaim. Okay? Eternal gospel, all right? And later we're going to see eternal torment. Okay? The contrast. Gospel means good news. The good news is the kingdom of God is near. And if the kingdom's near, that means the king is near, and that's Jesus, and that's always a good thing. Although, I guess it's not a good thing if you don't know him. So there's that. All right. So what is the eternal gospel? He's going to define it right here. To proclaim, that's what we do with the gospel. When you have good news, you don't keep it to yourself. You share it. You proclaim it. To who? To those who live on the earth, to every nation, tribe, language, and tongue. That's another way of saying everybody. Verse 7, he said in a loud voice, and I'm amplified so I won't yell, fear God, give him glory, because the hour of his judgment has come. Worship him who made the heavens and the earth and the sea and the springs of water. In other words, your creator God. So here are three things that we're to do for the creator God, to the creator God, because he's worthy. And this is what the redeemed do, and this is what the wicked do not do, and this is why they're called wicked, because they do not fear the Lord, they do not glorify him by the way that they speak, think, and act, and they do not worship him. Okay? And remember, we're not defining worship as sing three songs and, um, and say a prayer. Worship is life. Okay, we worship him with our lips, but we worship him with our lives. Hebrews 13, 15, and 16. That's that's all I got time for there. Fear God, give him glory, and worship him. Those are the three things that we're to do, and we're to do it. And he's basically saying, you need to do that just because he's your creator. Forget the redemption piece for a second. Okay, not long, but for a second. He's he created us. He could have created anybody. Do you realize that? He didn't use up all the, the options that he had. He didn't create you because he was like, well, i got to make one of those too. He didn't do that. He just created you because he's like, I want to create this one because I think this one's cool. Or I think this one's going to be great. Or however he sees you. But you, as one of his kids, you're apple of his eye. You're special, unique. You're a a unique blend of circumstance and, and personality and passions and life experiences and all the rest. He didn't do it by accident. He didn't drop a test tube and go, oops, you know, or I mixed the wrong two together and whoa. He didn't, no, he did it on purpose. So you're not here by accident, contrary to a few science teachers, okay? You are here on purpose for a purpose. God ascribed you, described you, and he did it because he's got something he wants to do in you so he can do it through you, okay? And so we... We first, we fear him because if you don't fear the one who created you from nothing, then you don't have, I don't even know how to say this nicely, you're not thinking well. How about that? Okay? And no wonder you're not worshiping him and glorifying him. He created you. But then we also, besides fear him, which is hold him in awe, because who can say baseball and boom, there's a baseball from nothing in their hand. Nobody can do that except God. All right? And he did it, but he didn't do baseball. He did universe. Okay? That's pretty impressive. We fear him. 
we glorify him. What does it mean to glorify him? It means to do what the moon does every night when it's available to be seen. It, what does it reflect? It reflects the sunlight. So if you'll allow me to maybe use this as some imagery, an analogy, if we let the sun, S-U-N, represent God, and let the sun rays represent Jesus, okay, sunbeams, S-O-N, okay, then when that sun hits a reflective surface like the moon, like us, a heart that is, is, is we've bared it to him, then we reflect, what we reflect is some of what you would see if you looked at the sun, but you can't look at the sun because it'll burn your eyeballs. That's kind of what they mean in the Bible when we're like, I can't look on God or I'll die. Yep, because he'd just overwhelm you in every way possible because we're these little bitty, I mean, we're not even like ants compared to people when you compare us to God. It's not even close. It's infinity difference. And, and so to look at God and his holiness and all his glory it's just un. We can't do it unless he somehow gives us some sunglasses that work really, really well, right? Like future so bright, gotta wear shades, kind of shades, right? Uh, so um, we are like the moon, and we have the opportunity to stand out from behind the earth and reflect the sunlight to the earth, so that others can see and be blessed. Or we can hide behind it and not reflect. Okay. So that's how you glorify God. You glorify God with the things that you say out loud, the things that you say and you thought they weren't out loud, the things in your head, and then the things that you do that you should do and the things that you don't do that maybe you would be tempted to do but choose not to do. Okay? So sins of omission and commission, sins. All right? When we don't do those things, we glorify God. And that's what he created us to do, radiate his glory. And you do that best when you do that as you. You don't try to be somebody else. You don't try to do it the way somebody else would do it. You be you. You, as they say, you do you. Because no one can do you like you. And you might not like that. You might not feel very good about that right now. You might be ashamed or whatever. And if it's sin, and repent of it and move on. And if it's in your head because you've got issues, well, we all do. So like Gene said earlier, just get over it and go shine. All right, and and the best place to shine is in dark places. Okay, so go to dark places because they need to see the glory of God. That's why it's dark there because it's not there yet. That's why we need to send people to the nations that have not yet heard, to the people groups that have not yet heard. Okay, and um, then he says, worship Him. So when we glorify God, that is an act of worship, but it is something that we choose to do or we choose not to do. Okay. And it is something you do by what you say, and it is something that you do by um, how you live. Romans 12.1, therefore I urge you, Paul says, I urge you, in view of God's mercy, that's getting, not getting what you deserve, I urge you in view of God's mercy to offer your bodies, your lives, as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God. This is your spiritual act of worship. Okay? So Paul's, and he says that, therefore, in light of the first 11 chapters of Romans. And if you haven't read Romans, um, you should start 
as soon as the service is over, just start reading. Okay? Um, but chapter 12, it's the hinge point of the whole book of Romans, and it starts with, Therefore, I urge you, brothers, in light of all of that, to offer your bodies, your lives, be a living sacrifice. And that sounds, that's a, sounds like a paradox, a contradiction in terms, because it is. A sacrifice is dead because it gives up, the ultimate sacrifice would be dead, it would be giving up your life. Um, so I'm going back to my question. What are you doing between now and Judgment Day? And you really only have two possible answers. I'm living for myself, or I'm living for him. And if you're going to live for him, then you're going to be a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God, because you're going to seek to glorify, worship, and fear him because he's redeemed you. And there's really no other agenda in your life that comes close to that agenda. So if you're not doing that, it's time to recalibrate. I remember in the old days when I actually used to use Windows computers, and I had, uh, you had to scan disk. Remember that? You'd click to scan the disk, and then you defragged. And then when the computer would lock up, you'd have to reboot. And sometimes you couldn't just click and reboot. You had to push the power button and hold it down until it, right? So I got to reboot, all right? I mean, I, you know, I mean, if you have to hit start to end, there's a whole problem with your software anyway, but anyway. Sorry, not an ad for Apple or anything like that, just saying. Um, but here's the thing. We need to reboot when we're walking in a way that is not pleasing to him. When we're not living for him, we're living for ourselves, we need to reboot. But here's the cool thing. When you live for him, it's actually better than living for yourself because all those things you think you're giving up, which you are, are replaced with things that are better than what you gave up. But that's that, the enemy tells you that's not true. He lies to you. Well, his track record is really consistent and good. Father of lies, deceiver, okay, adversary, all those things that Satan means. He's those things all the time. All right, let's keep going. So the, the, uh, the, the second angel, verse 8, continues this idea. Followed and said, fallen, fallen is Babylon the great, which made all the nations drink the maddening wine of the adulteries. So Babylon was a city, ancient Babylon goes all the way back into Genesis. So all the way back to the beginning. And you might have heard of a guy named Nimrod, who was one of the first leaders that popped up in that. And, and Babylon has always been a city that has been against God. Okay, It's actually the ruins of Babylon are located in modern-day Iraq. Shocker, okay, and Saddam Hussein was actually trying to rebuild it. Shocker number two, right? So this is just what we're dealing with. And so Babylon isn't referring to the city. It's referring symbolically to something bigger than a city. It's saying this is the mindset of the world governments at the end of time. And folks, if you're paying attention, this is the mindset of most of the world leaders today anyway. It's heading that way. It's the difference is it's going to unite. They're all going to unite under this Antichrist figure we talked about two weeks ago. All right? And that mindset is going to be one world ruled so that their central power will be able to control and dominate. And that's what Satan wants. He wants everybody to worship him. He doesn't care if they really want to worship him. He just wants to make them do it because he wants to be God even though God created him. Not like he ended up. But God created him. And so it's just so, I mean, think about how nutso you have to be to believe that I somehow could replace God and be worthy of worship. I mean, that's just, right? That's just nuts. But evil is nuts. This is why we sometimes see evil things happen. We go, that just doesn't make sense. How could somebody do that? That's evil. It doesn't add up to the mind of God. All right, third angel followed them and said in a loud voice, if anyone worships the beast in its image and, reserve, and receives its mark on their forehead or on their hand, 
they too will drink the wine of God's fury, which has been poured full strength into the cup of his wrath. They will, okay, let me pause there for a second, and then I'll continue. So in Scripture, another image that you'll see is the cup of God's wrath. And, and the picture is a goblet or a cup of some kind filled with wine, and that, that wine is symbolic of blood that is shed due to wrath, vengeance. Okay, Luke 22, I'll just read it to you. Luke 22, 42, I think is where Jesus is in the Garden of Gethsemane, and he's praying the night he was arrested and the day before he is hung on the cross. I'll start reading in 39. Jesus went out, as usual, to the Mount of Olives. The Mount of Olives is on Mount Zion, okay? It's part of that. It's where there's an olive grove, an olive garden. Not an olive garden. You know what I mean, right? A garden of olive trees. Y'all are going to think I've got all kinds of sponsors, aren't you? All right? Maybe I... Never mind. Okay. Jesus went out as usual to the Mount of Olives, and his disciples followed him, okay? Um, Minus Judas, because he's gone off to betray. On reaching the place, he said to them, that is the disciples, pray that you will not fall into temptation. This is why we pray, one big reason. He withdrew about a stone's throw beyond them, knelt down, and prayed. And this is what he prayed, verse 42. Father, if you are willing, take this cup, okay, cup of wrath, Take this cup from me, yet not my will, but yours be done. Now, that's the way to pray, right? Ask God whatever you want, and at the end of the day, say at the end of the prayer, God, yet not my will, but yours be done. Why would you say that? Because his will is always best, and we don't always know because we don't have his perspective, okay? So ask whatever you want, but then always remember to say, but not my will, but yours, because I want what's best, and you know what that is. Okay? Sometimes that's not what we, we really, really don't want what's best. We really want what we want. Okay? I mean, we do, but we don't. And so he's teaching us there. The cup of wrath was the cross. See, here's what happened at the cross. Jesus takes the place of humanity. And the reason he can take the place of humanity is because he's fully human. Divinity put on an earth suit and became a man. He humbled himself, right? And that's as humble as you can get human man, right? And he walked this earth for 30 plus years and never sinned, never gave in to the temptations that came his way. So he, he was not only human, but he was, un, he, he was unblemished as a sinner. Now you say, whoa, 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 we're all born sinners, right? This is why the virgin birth matters, okay? So we have the, he didn't have the seed of Adam because he's the second Adam. And so the So the Holy Spirit and Mary make a perfect boy, okay, who becomes the perfect man and lives the life consistent with that. So when he dies on the cross in our place, he doesn't just die as a martyr, and he doesn't just die as any other man. He dies as the only one qualified to receive the wrath of God on our behalf as an unblemished sacrifice. Think of the Old Testament sacrificial system, right? You You had to have an unblemished lamb or goat, or whatever animal it was you used, you couldn't offer one that wasn't all the conditions, male, one-year-old, unblemished. You know, like if I had a broken leg, you couldn't offer that lamb. It wasn't unblemished. And Jesus represented humanity as an unblemished. That's why he's called the Lamb of God. All right? And he knows that's what he's being called to, but he's, he's, he's being honest. I don't want to do this. He knows what's coming. If there's any other way, Father, yet not my will 
but yours because he loved the Father that much. He was willing to obey him even to death, the humiliating death that all of us deserve, but he took. Okay? Keep going. Um, Then it says, and this is where it gets really, really hard to take. And this, let's see, verse, I'm part while you're through 10. They will be tormented. Okay, who's that? Who's they? This is those who've rejected Christ, those who've rejected God. They will be tormented with burning sulfur and the presence of the holy angels and of the Lamb. So that means they're watching, they can see all this happening. Verse 11. And the smoke of their torment will rise forever and ever. Okay? Forever and ever. So let's just feel that for a minute. Okay? How long is eternal? How long is forever and ever? I want you to imagine. Okay, you know our oceans cover three-fourths of our planet, right, with water. You know that the oceans at some point are this deep, and some point they're miles deep. I want you to imagine that all the water was replaced with sand. I want you to imagine that all the water was replaced with beach sand, the finest stuff you can find, and that once a day, a little bird flies out and picks up one grain of sand and flies and takes it away in the effort of emptying the oceans of all the sand. And every day, the little bird flies out and picks up one grain of sand and flies away, and I don't know where he puts it, but anyway, he puts it and makes it go away in the attempt to empty the oceans of all the sand. Now, imagine how long that might take. One grain of sand at a time, three-fourths oceans, right, full of sand. But, let's, but eventually that could happen, right? Long enough, we wait long enough. The last day, the last grain, he flies and he takes it away and the oceans are emptied. We haven't finished day one of forever and ever. Okay? It's forever and ever. And now, this is probably what some of you are thinking right now. That seems like way over the top punishment for what has happened. And this is where you and I have to remember the verse that we don't think like God and God doesn't think like us and we don't understand how holy he is because we look at sin and we go, yeah, it's pretty bad. I'm here, but sin's pretty bad. And God's like, no, no, you need to add infinity on top of that before you get to me. When you sin, we've offended him, the holy creator. We have said, we have done You can think of the worst things we could say or think or do, and we are just getting started describing to him um, what we think about him. We see God way too low. We make God in our image instead of seeing him in the image that he is. And as a result, we don't take sin seriously. And so when we sin, we go, oops, and we might say sorry, and we might repent, but we don't take it very seriously. And so when we hear that the punishment for rejecting the creator is eternal torment forever and ever, we go, that's just ridiculous. God would not do that. God would never send people to hell. That's what we think. That's why we don't preach the gospel, because we don't want to say that. I don't like saying it, but he says it right here. And he says it, Jesus talks about hell more than he talks about heaven. It's a real place. Now, now, it's important that you understand that when God redeems you and saves you through the cross, that you are saved, and you can't be unsaved. If you are genuinely born again, you can't be unborn again, okay? So you don't fear 
You fear God, but you don't fear hell because you've been rescued from it. That's why we praise him, because we don't have that to look forward to. Okay? But the people around us that don't know the Lord, that's their future unless God intervenes. And who, gosh, God needs to come up with somebody to send to them so that we can, he can intervene. Who might he send? Oh, yeah, his bride. That's our job. It's why he hasn't already taken us home. So he says, there will be no rest. For, now look, he's going to describe it. There is no rest, day or night, for those who worship the beast and its image or anyone who receives the mark of the name. Okay, so that's going to be evidence. If somebody receives the mark and someone bows down to this giant statue that they're going to erect of this killed but then somehow revived antichrist, their fate is sealed. Their name is not written in the book of life. And yes, hell forever and ever, eternal torment is due. That's what they're going to get. And that's what they deserve. And it's what they chose. Okay? Even though God gave them many, many opportunities to repent in many dramatic ways. Just read before chapter 14 and you'll see those starting in chapter 6. And then he says this. Verse 12, this calls for patient endurance. This is the second time he said it. He said it in chapter 13. This calls for patient endurance on the part of the people of God. And then he describes the people of God. Those who keep his commands and remain faithful to Jesus. Not faithful to a church. Not faithful to a preacher. Not faithful to an author. Not faithful to, right? right? Faithful to Jesus. That's not politically correct. This is when we know our country's in trouble. It used to be that the country hated Christianity and hated church, but they still liked Jesus. They are like, yeah, Jesus is cool. He, wear, he probably wore jeans. He, I like Jesus, right? Well, now they're starting to push back on Jesus. That's when we know things are starting to get serious because they're, they're realizing that, that, that Jesus believes this because he spoke this. And when they don't like some of this, they have to come to grips with the fact that either you like him or you don't. Either you believe he's who he said he was or you have some twisted version of who you think he is. All right? Verse 13, let's wrap it up. Then I heard a voice from heaven say, this is kind of weird, okay? So just bear with me. A voice from heaven speaks, write this, and then there's a beatitude. Blessed are the dead who die in the Lord from now on. Okay, now remember, this is talking about the future. And it's saying, blessed are the dead who die in the Lord from now on. Okay? When we trust the Lord, we are dying to ourselves, right? Picture baptism. We do baptism. We, we, we say, as we lower them into the water and raise them back up, we say, buried together with Christ. Well, you don't bury someone that's alive, I hope. No, right? That would be terrible. That's like a, a horrible version of stranger things, right? It's like burying people. We're burying them together in Christ, raised to walk a new life with him. We bury the dead. The dead, the past, your past, the, you living life on your terms as if you were God. Sounds like Satan, doesn't it? Lucifer, it's, it's forsaking. I'm dying to that way of life, and I am surrendering my life to him. So I ask the question again. What are you going to do between now and judgment day? How are you going to live? It ends with this. And I don't know how many times I can think of the Holy Spirit speaking. I think he only speaks twice in the whole book of Revelation. And he says, yes. And I, I kind of picture him going, yes. I don't know how he does it. But he says this. Yes, says the Spirit. They will rest from their labor. What's our labor? Well, 
for me, it's like worrying and trying to strive to be liked and trying to be in control and trying to right accumulate and all the, the idols that we chase. And it's rest from that because we don't need that because we have everything we need in Christ Jesus when we believe. Yes, says the Spirit of God, they, the redeemed, will rest from their labor for their deeds, that is their obedience, and their glorifying him and their worship will follow them. So this is what I think we're supposed to be doing. This is my answer to the question, how am I going to live between now and judgment day? I'm going to follow Christ. So there's Christ. I'm following after him. And I'm, hey, come on, follow me as I follow him. That's the posture that I want to live. And, and I'm like, Jesus, you're going to have to help me. I don't know the way, but I can see you and I'm keeping my eyes on you, the author and perfecter of my faith. Right, keep the sun in your eyes is another way of saying. Remember that, right? Hebrews twelve one and two. Keep the sun in your eyes. Follow him, the author and perfecter of your faith, who for the joy set before him endured the cross. So if you follow him, and you say, oh, "I want to live for Jesus," be careful to count the cost, because while you will offer salvation freely, it will cost you to do that. And if you're not willing to pay the price then maybe you're not ready to follow him yet. And if you're not ready to follow him yet, beware of the mark of the beast. Okay? Because you will be tempted to take it. And whatever that version is before that happens, you will be tempted to compromise in that as well. Let's pray. Lord, these are hard words. They're sobering. Uh, terrifying, but they are words of life because they, they open our eyes to what is true and real and they give us the opportunity to respond in a life-giving way. Because how can we get saved if we don't recognize that we need salvation? So God, we thank you for the grace and mercy you've given us today to hear these words as terrifying as they may feel for those who are not in Christ or as we think about people we know who are not in Christ and we think about their future right now. It should sober us and remind us that we have an awesome task in front of us and that is to be the mouthpiece of God proclaiming the eternal gospel to a world that doesn't want to hear it. But Lord, there are people that we know where we live, work, learn and play that need and want to hear this. They may not realize it yet, but they do. Give us the courage, conviction, and compassion to tell them. May we not delay. May we not be guilty of the sin of silence. May we walk in obedience, in patient endurance, and faithfulness. In Christ's name we pray, amen. So now you understand why the cross matters. And now you understand why we do the Lord's Supper every week. Because we, we do never want to forget that. Okay? Jesus took our place. So we're going to stand and we're going to sing. And as we sing, um, you're going to have a chance to respond. Musicians, go ahead and come on up. Um, Lord's Supper tables are each way. And you just come down these 
middle aisles and peel back around on the outside at home. If you'll go ahead and prepare, if you haven't already, bread and, and juice. Grape, grape juice represents the blood of Christ. The bread represents the body of Christ, broken for us, right? The seed of wheat, the seed that is wheat that makes bread, the seed does not sprout into life until it is broken, and what happens for a seed to be broken is it has to dry out. It has to technically die. So the seed dies. It cracks, which is, means it's broken. And now life can come, right? God allows you and I to be broken through, through conviction of sin and repentance of faith, okay? That's why it's such an awkward, uncomfortable feeling. When I trusted the Lord, it was a horrible experience for me. I hated it. I did not leave rejoicing in the Lord when I left that night, but I knew God had met me and I knew I had changed and it just took me a while to appreciate that, <laughs> okay? And that may be true for you too, but it's still real. So I'm just asking you, has it been real for you? What are you gonna do between now and judgment day? 